Hi friends, before we jump into today's episode, I want to thank you for choosing to listen to the surprising rebirth of Belief in God. We'll soon be celebrating 500,000 downloads since launch and winning a Zenga prize for podcast journalism. If you're enjoying the series and you'd like to help me reach even more people with thinking faith, can I encourage you to support this podcast? Becoming a silver supporter means you get early access to episodes and bonus content, Gold supporters also get signed books and a monthly catch-up with me on Zoom, if you'd like it. The links to support are with the show notes or visit justinbriley.com. Enjoy today's episode. Please be aware today's show contains descriptions of violence and bloodshed that some listeners may find distressing. This is Sinjar. 80 miles west of the monastery. Isis came here in August 2014. By the time they left five months later, 5,000 men had been massacred, women and children carried off. This is historian Tom Holland in 2016, walking through the shattered remains of a town in northern Iraq during the filming of a television documentary, ISIS, The Origins of Violence. Sinjar had only recently been liberated by Kurdish forces from Islamic radicals, whose front line was still only a couple of miles away. Sponge pants, bulb. Quality of nightmare. You're walking through an absolutely shattered city and you see cartoon character. These markers of everyday life sat alongside more distressing items hair and even body parts poking out from the rubble that lined the streets. This had once been the heartland of Syriac and Armenian Christian communities going back centuries and living in relative peace alongside other religious minorities. Now they were gone, the blown-out doorways daubed with the graffiti emblems that showed that Christians or Yazidis had once lived there. These were the homes of fathers and sons who had been rounded up to be shot, mothers and daughters captured to be sold as sex slaves. They're like ghosts risen up from the past of vanished empires. And they're kind of like ghouls picking their way over this rubble. Oh, I'm gonna be sick. Little wonder that these sights made Holland physically wretch. But perhaps one of the most distressing aspects of this scene of violence and massacre was that Sinjar was also a town where ISIS had crucified people. Holland has gone on to speak to public audiences about the shock he experienced in seeing the brutality he had only read about in the ancient world come to life in the 21st century. Women, girls as young as eight, uh, rounded up uh, those held to be attractive enough to become sex slaves uh, sold into slavery. Uh, those who weren't shot, dumped, abandoned. Uh, and many of the men who'd been butchered, many of the, those men had been crucified. They'd been crucified in this town where I was. As has been said, my, my background is 
preeminently in classical antiquity, specifically in Rome. It's possible to spend your whole life <laughs> studying the Romans and kind of never breathe in the dust of a town where people have been crucified. But when I did, I felt ashamed at the lack of imagination, the lack of kind of historical empathy that I'd shown, and also the lack of curiosity that I'd shown in not wondering what it was that had changed since the time of Caesar, the kind of, the sense of an existential abyss that I was feeling wasn't just my sense of dread and terror that I was kind of close to people who, who, who had done this. It, it was kind of profounder than that. It was realizing the reality of a world in which the cross serves as a symbol of the power of the powerful to torture and torment and kill the powerless. When instinctively, to me, as someone who had grown up in a fundamentally Christian society, the cross served as the opposite. The cross served as a reassurance that actually it's the powerless who triumphs over the powerful. It's the slave who triumphs over the master. It's the man sentenced to the cross who triumphs over the apparatus of the state that has sentenced him. I was present when Holland delivered this talk for Open Doors, a charity that advocates for persecuted Christians around the world. It was uncomfortable to hear such grim details of the suffering inflicted on religious minorities by Islamic extremists. But it also became obvious that Holland himself had not been left untouched by his encounter. Yes, by being made freshly aware of the cultural significance of the cross at the centre of Christianity, but also, as we'll discover towards the end of today's episode, by being surprised to find that, even in a place of such desolation, heaven could seem to touch earth. I'm Justin Briley, and throughout my working life, I've been hosting conversations on faith between atheists, agnostics and believers. In this documentary series, I'm telling the story of why new atheism grew old and secular thinkers are considering Christianity again. I'm speaking to those inside and outside the atheist movement and the many new thinkers beginning a new conversation on the value of faith. Welcome to The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, Episode 12, The Christian Revolution, Why the Cross Changed the World. Did you know this podcast is also a book, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, Why New Atheism Grew Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity Again, is available now. Historian Tom Holland says Justin has had a ringside seat watching the great debates on religion and reports on them with learning, subtlety and grace. Now, don't tell anyone, but you'll actually get the first chapter free in your email inbox if you subscribe to my newsletter. 
or if you want to just go ahead and order, signed editions are available from my website. Or even better, you'll get both my books personally signed when you become a gold supporter of this podcast. So for the newsletter, the book or to support, check the links in the show notes or visit justinbriley.com. You cannot write a more tragic story. It's impossible, technically. Why? Well, because it's a story of the aggregation of everything that people are afraid of. This is public intellectual Jordan Peterson speaking on the world's most popular podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience. So there was no death more painful than crucifixion. That's why the Romans invented it. It was to punish political miscreants. It was a slow, agonizing death by suffocation, essentially, and, and, and dehydration and exposure. It's extraordinarily painful. Okay, so that sucks. That's pain, man. Plus, you know it's coming. That's part of the story. Plus... Your best friend betrayed you into it. Plus, your people turned against you. Plus, they're led by a tyrant who doubts truth. Plus, you're a victim of the Roman Empire. Plus, you're completely innocent. Plus, everybody knows it. Plus, they they choose a criminal to be released from this experience instead of you, even though they know he's a criminal and they know you're innocent. So, and you're young. And you've done no wrong. And all you've done is help people. So it's a limit story. We've been looking at that limit story for 2,000 years. Peterson, who commands a huge audience of his own, has been at pains in recent years to remind a secular world that, psychologically speaking, the crucifixion story of Jesus stands as history's preeminent example of betrayal, sacrifice, heroism and love. Yet, this is a story that is more than just an inspiring narrative. It really happened. The crucifixion of Jesus is among the best attested facts of ancient history. Tom Holland, who co-hosts the most popular history podcast in the world, has also been reminding his large audience that we've forgotten just how brutal crucifixion was. We have very few descriptions of crucifixion in, in Roman literature. We have the Gospels, of course, but, but very little else, and we have very little physical evidence of what it was. And one of the reasons for this is that the Romans themselves seem to have been so revolted by crucifixion that they didn't like to dwell on it. When we think about crucifixion and we try and see it through Roman eyes, we don't want to try and repress the knowledge of this. We need to foreground it because the suffering and the agony and above all, the humiliation of it was precisely the point. Crucifixion was a fate that was visited on those who were regarded by the Romans as the lowest of the low. People who, um, who were rebels against the power of Caesar in the provinces, or even worse, slaves who were rebels against their masters. And the reason that crucifixion was seen as paradigmatically the fate that um, should be visited on slaves was that you didn't just suffer physical agony. It wasn't just that it was protracted, lasting perhaps you know, hours, perhaps days. It's also the fact that it was public. Your sufferings in a society where to be humiliated, to be shamed was the, absolutely the worst of fates, your sufferings were visible to everyone. People could gather and point and laugh as birds flocked around your head to peck out your eyes as you gasped and heaved, hauling yourself up and down 
feeling the nail scrape against the bone as you did so, your agony would be a cause of, of mockery. And so the body of a crucified slave, of a crucified rebel against Rome, uh, hanging from a cross, served the Romans as a kind of billboard, advertising their power, advertising their authority, advertising their, not just their right, but their duty to uh, impose incredible suffering on anyone who dared to resist them. Until it was eventually banned, crucifixion was commonplace in the Roman Empire. Jesus was just one of hundreds of thousands of rebels, slaves and criminals who were put to death in this manner. Yet the fact that early Christians made their crucified Messiah and the cross on which he hung the centre of their faith would have appeared beyond bizarre to their Greco-Roman neighbours, as historian Nijay Gupta, author of Strange Religion, explains. There was no more degrading symbol, right? In fact, we found, we found graffiti from Pompeii where they use the language of go crucify yourself or go get crucified the way we would say go F yourself. I know that's extreme language, but that, that's, that's how they use that language, right? Go, go get yourself crucified. But here you have this man, Jesus, who is a foreigner. He's not a Roman citizen. That's a strike against him, right? He's from nowhere. That's a strike against him, right? He has a questionable pedigree, you know, ethnic pedigree and heritage, that's strike against him. And then worst of all, he was crucified. I mean, there was almost nothing in the Roman world more degrading than being crucified. There's no way back from that, right? It was known as the punishment that you would give to slaves and slaves were essentially seen as non-people. There's, um, there's a famous piece of graffiti we found from the ancient world called the Alexamenos uh, Graffito. And it's actually, it seems to be a, a teenager's doodling. And uh, they doodle a picture of a man on a cross with a donkey's head. And then they have a, a stick figure person standing next to it saying, and that says, Alexamenos worships his God. Alexander worships his God. And we think that this is actually making fun of Christians to worship a crucified person is as stupid as worshiping a donkey. And yet these Christians believe that this person was actually the center of the universe and that this person has all power and authority in heaven and on earth. And this was just wild. It would be like just rolling a dice and making up a religion is the way the Greeks and Romans would look at it. It wasn't only that the Christians worshipped a crucified leader, it was that they also claimed that the person who died the shameful death of a rebel slave was God in human form and had risen again. This was perhaps the strangest part of the story. Characters in the pantheon of the gods may have come down or sent their subordinates for errands on earth, but dying to save the least, the last and the lost, and death in the most shameful way possible, that was completely alien to their world. Yet this was the central belief, affirmed in one of the earliest Christian hymns we have, quoted by Paul in the second chapter of his letter to the Philippians, when he told his readers that they should not look to their own interests, but to the interests of others, having the same mind as Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something 
nothing to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Nijay Gupta. In all the literature I could find on crucifixion from the Roman world, it was always so-and-so was crucified by X. It was never so-and-so signed up for crucifixion, volunteered for crucifixion. It's always passive. Someone was crucified. But with Jesus, he actually chooses it. That's where the mindset comes in, right? And then you have this great turn that Christ him in verse 9. Therefore, God super exalted him. Now, in a, in a Roman version of this, it would be, therefore, God gave up on him because he was crucified. But it's actually an inversion of what we expect. He was super exalted, given the name that is but every name. And what Christians do is they say, you could look at the crucifixion as a failure, or you could look at it as Jesus doing whatever it takes to honor this supreme God. And that includes his humility and his love for others. Tom Holland. We have to think ourselves into the, well, not the shoes, the sandals of the Romans, I guess to understand and properly appreciate just how unfathomably weird it is that today the cross of all things should be perhaps the most instantly recognizable cultural symbol that any human culture has, has developed. And that it symbolizes not power, but kind of the opposite, that the victim will triumph. The early Christian belief that God had emptied himself in order to become human and to die on the cross for the sake of others came to define the way that they themselves began to engage the world around them through self-giving love and in turn would revolutionise the way the Western world thinks about compassion, human dignity and much more. Part of my belief that we're seeing the first signs of a surprising rebirth of belief in God is through seeing more and more thinkers and members of the public recognising the distinctly Christian water we're swimming in and asking whether we can hold on to such beliefs in the absence of the Christian story. In this episode, as we conclude our act looking at how the Christian story has shaped us, we'll briefly examine the various ways the cruciform nature of Christianity changed our attitude towards the treatment of disabled or unwanted children, universal health care and the institution of slavery. You got involved in a Twitter interaction with a woman who said she would be faced with a real ethical dilemma if she became pregnant with a baby with Down syndrome. You tweeted, abort it and try again. It would be immoral to bring it into the world if you have the choice. This is radio host Brendan O'Connor, who has a child with Down syndrome, interviewing Richard Dawkins following a controversy around a tweet that the atheist scientist had made. Now, I, I saw you're speaking to somebody who, who did bring someone like that into the world, OK, but we, let's put that aside. Why is it immoral not to abort it? Well, uh, that was probably putting it a bit too strongly. But um, given that uh, the, um, the amount of suffering in the world uh, probably does not go down, probably does go up, uh, c compared to having another child who doesn't have Down syndrome. What People I'm interested in saying, is how do you know that it increases the amount of suffering in the world to bring in a child with Down syndrome into the world? 
I don't know it for certain. It seems okay. to me to be plausible. You probably would increase the amount of happiness in the world more by having an, another child instead. Do you think? But you have no reason for knowing that. I have no direct evidence. No, you don't, oh, it just okay. seems plausible. Just you know, you're such a scientific, logical person that I thought that you could possibly have some logical uh, backup to it. Do you know anyone with Down syndrome? Not, not, not intimately, no. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, everyone has their own experience of it and possibly m my experience would be that you're not necessarily right and I think a lot of people would think you're not necessarily right. Look, anyway. I'm sure, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that, that, that you love your child Oh yeah, nothing, no, nothing to do with that. I'm, I, I'm not having an emotional discussion with you here. I'm yeah. simply having a logical discussion with you. Do you think it would be immoral for them not to do it? Let's leave out of the. Let's leave out the immoral. No, I but you brought be, immoral into it. Okay, well, I, I take that back. Okay. I think it would be wise. I think it would be wise and sensible. You know, children who are so-called perfect can cause terrible suffering in the world as well. But I suppose we have no way of checking, have we? Uh, no, of course. Yeah, yeah. That exchange between Brendan O'Connor and Dawkins is a testimony to the feelings evoked by the question of what value those with disabilities bring to the world and whether we should even think in such categories. But whether such children, within or even outside the womb, deserve to be treated with the same respect as any other member of the human race is not a question that tended to worry the Greco-Roman world. You know, the, the very first manual of midwifery in, in the first century, um, uh, one of the opening chapters is um, how to discern the child that is worth rearing. This is Glenn Scrivener, author of The Air We Breathe. Of course, we go, yikes, that the ancient people weren't going, yikes, that they're going, well, we want to build an empire, right? We, we don't want people holding us back. And so the idea of exposing infants and that kind of infanticide, just for those who aren't familiar with the phrase, I mean, you know, paint for us what exposure was. Yeah. This wasn't a sort of very sanitized way of doing away with unwanted infants. In lots of different ways. I mean, some were thrown down wells and some were drowned in rivers and some were just left on rubbish tips, exposed to the elements and maybe the dogs get them or maybe people traffickers get them and put them to work in the brothels, which in Rome were, for instance, state sponsored. And where do they get all the women from? Well, from warfare and from the exposure of infants. And and so this was a, a common practice and, and Christians utterly despised it and stood against it and collected the children and reared them, you know, with, within communities. And it was this sort of compassion ethic that looks to a rubbish dump and says, I'm going to find something of God, actually, in the least and the last and the last, because Actually, you know, Christ died and a lot of crucifixion sites were rubbish dumps. It's, it's exactly what you would do with people. They were refuse. And if our God descended there, there is where we meet God. You know, Jesus says in, in that famous parable in Matthew 25 that, you know, with the least and the last of the last, whatever you do for them, you are doing for me. And Christians have taken that very seriously. What, what, what were they looking for when they toured the rubbish dumps trying to find children? Um, they were... They were expressing compassion and they were, they were seeing God in the face of the abandoned child. This is just a, a, a radical view of the world. And again, it's not the Christians have been brilliant at living it out. I'm not brilliant at living it out, but I think we recognize it's a beautiful song to sing.
In this archive lecture, the late historian Larry Hurtado tells a remarkable story that demonstrates Roman attitudes towards exposure of infants. This was legal and appears to have been practiced widely without serious qualms or hesitation, as illustrated by an oft-noted letter from a certain Hilarion to his wife, Alice, written in about 1 BC. After greeting his wife and other relatives, Hilarion asks her to, quote, take care of the little one, their child apparently, and promises to send money as soon as he is paid. Alice is expecting, it appears, another child, and Hilarion then instructs her, if it is a boy, let it be. If it is a girl, cast it out. But then, after what will seem this callous order, he expresses his unaltered affection for her. How can I forget you, he writes. I beg you then not to be anxious. Now, Hilarion was obviously not a monster. He was capable of human feelings. That's my point. It wasn't monsters who threw away their kids in the Roman world. It was everyday, nice, caring, related people. The practice of discarding infants was so widespread and accepted by people that people capable of tender feelings felt little reluctance about it. Along with Judaism, however, early Christianity utterly rejected the practice. Glenn Scrivener. We gasp at that. Nobody, and that's what's so fascinating about doing history, and this, this was Tom Holland's kind of journey. What is invisible to a Roman is so stark to us. And what we, what we really need to do is to take ourselves out of the, the, the culture that we're in, and we, and we see that it's, it's not natural, obvious, or universal that you should keep um, members of your society that will not be as economically productive. Why should you? Why? Oh, because you should. No, but why? Because it's the right thing to do. Well, lots of people have disagreed. Well, what, what is it? And I, I think the most profound answer is because Jesus, because he is the one who descends to the rubbish dump. You know, because he, he is the one who was for the little guy. He became the little guy. You know, he died that slave's death. And you can encounter the most divine. So, so, there's, so that there's nothing more divine than compassion. It's, it's a supernatural thing. Because what is natural is the survival of the fittest and the sacrifice of the weakest. And what do you see in Jesus? You see the fittest sacrificed for we the weakest. So that we the weakest might survive and thrive and pass on the compassion revolution. And... and when you see any aspect of compassion, I think you're starting to get in touch with something that's supernatural. And I just keep saying, well, just, just keep pulling at that thread because at the other end is Jesus. During his life, the secular historian Rodney Stark made the case in influential books such as The Rise of Christianity that it was the church's response to these issues that caused it to become so popular among women, especially girls who might not have lived otherwise. This is Stark speaking to historian John Dixon. I mean, one of the terrific advantages would be for women. Uh, in some ways, it's surprising that every woman in the Roman Empire didn't become a Christian overnight because the advantages were so great. Roman girls typically got married at 12 or 13 to men who were in the 30s and 40s. Christian girls tended to get married at 18 and to have some say in who they married and to not easily be divorced with the expectation that their husbands would be faithful and perhaps and this is this is a messy topic. No abortion. Can you imagine what abortion was like in a world that didn't know about germs, had no anesthesia? It was an incredibly brutal 
and very often fatal practice. And you say, well, then why did women do it? Because they had no choice, because men decided whether or not they would abort. Uh, the same was true with, with, with the killing of infants. Husbands would say, well, if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, lay it out on, along the road and be, be done with it. It was, a, it was a brutal world, and Christianity provided a very secure haven of humanity for people, and it's, it's not really surprising that that was attractive. Some cultures have continued the practice of exposure, especially of unwanted girls, until relatively recently. Social reformer Vishal Mangalwadi told me how this issue went hand-in-hand with sooty, the practice of widow-burning in parts of his native India, and the inspiration he has drawn from Christian missionaries who tried to change such practices in the past. Lowering of the status of woman in India was... Um, fe- fe- resulted in female infanticide. Girls would be killed, and we Rutherites began to struggle against female in- infanticide ourselves. So we've had first-hand experience of fighting against this evil. But then, woman, if when she's married, and uh, she was married as a child. So in 1987, there was an 18-year-old widow who was forced to burn herself on her husband's funeral pyre. And I went and wrote that study that was actually about that uh, episode which became frontline story in 11, a chain of 11 newspapers in India and began to dominate. That's when I discovered William Carey is the man who uh, began fighting against widow burning in 1806. Uh, 1803, perhaps, was the first time when he saw the widow burning. He began to research this issue, and it was abolished by 1829. Uh, But it was being revived in the 1980s as the influence of the Bible was weakening. Female infanticide and widow burning were both... William Carey was the key figure in abolishing both of them, and Ruth and I struggled against both of these practices in the 1980s, and that's what, uh, particularly the opposition, my opposition to vi- revival of widow burning was what led to the gov- the parliament under Mr. Rajiv Gandhi uh, enacting stronger rules against widow burning. In Mangalwadi's view, the reform of such practices from ancient times to today, which in Christendom led to the banning of abortion and exposure, and the founding of orphanages and charitable institutions for child welfare and women, springs from a uniquely Christian view of the inherently equal value of men, women and children. It is not common sense that men and women are equal. No culture has ever seen uh, male and female as equal. Islam allows a man to marry four women because men and women are not equal. A woman is not allowed to marry four husbands. In Hinduism, a soul reincarnates as a female because her poor karma in previous life. So equality of male and female, equality of all human beings, these are theological ideas. They're not self-evident ideas. And this is what Tom Holland is pointing out, that you've borrowed these ideas from the Bible and you take the credit 
uh, that, oh, our brains invented this idea that male and female are equal and all human beings are equal. These ideas depend on the truth that God made man in his image, male and female. As you can hear, the influence of Tom Holland's thesis in his book Dominion has been spreading far and wide. But not everything that spreads is good news. China has identified the cause of the mysterious new virus. Coronavirus. Coronavirus. There are fears a rapidly spreading virus has reached Australia. This is a rapidly emerging situation. There is not a cause for alarm. The first US case has been detected. There's confirmation the coronavirus has reached Australia. China is urging its citizens not to travel abroad as it struggles to contain the virus. We will be standing up Christmas Island as a quarantine area. Foreign nationals coming from China are now banned from entering the country. I have today declared that the coronavirus presents a public health emergency in the United States. Plague and disease, of course, is nothing new. Thankfully, today, even as our globalised world means epidemics can easily become pandemics, our advances in science and technology can mitigate the worst aspects of outbreaks. But that was not an option in the ancient world, as medical doctor and research scientist Professor John Wyatt explains. In the, in the area of the early church, there were two great and terrible plagues, the Antonine and the Cyprian plagues. And the contemporaneous accounts of what happened in these times of plagues were really quite awful. Here's Pontius of Carthage, who gave an eyewitness account of a plague that struck uh, his city. Afterwards, there broke out a dreadful plague, an excessive destruction of a hateful disease, invaded every house in succession of the trembling populace carrying off day by day with abrupt attack, numberless people, everyone from his own house, all were shuddering, fleeing, shunning the contagion, impiously exposing their own friends, as if with the exclusion of the person who was sure to die of the plague, one could exclude death itself also. What was most remarkable about the Christian response to the plagues they faced was that, rather than running for the safety of the countryside, they went into the towns and cities devastated by plague to do what they could to treat those afflicted. Rodney Stark. Come the great plagues, and there were, there were several that came, swept through the empire in the days of early Christianity. A lot of Christians died treating the sick. That's what they did. That was considered an obligation. And one of the great early bishops wrote at length about the fact that, uh, of course, we're not afraid of this because uh, we, we know that we're going to spend death in eternity. Uh, but we have this obligation to care for one another. And as a result, Christians survived the plagues at a very high rate. It turns out that just giving people liquid and some sustenance, uh, a lot of people would recover from the plague. But if you basically run away from them or push them into the street, uh, then it is a fatal disease. I mean, it's, if, if people are willing to treat it, a lot of people will survive.
in uh, 251 AD, uh, there was another plague, and who knows what it was, maybe it was measles, um, but it was pretty much the same estimates of mortality rates, uh, a quarter to a third um, of the Roman Empire killed. This is Glenn Scrivener on the Speak Life podcast, picking up on Stark's thesis of how the Christian response to plague led to the growth of Christianity. Towns in Italy were abandoned, some of them were abandoned forever. It massively weakened the military and all infrastructure. But whereas back in 165 AD, uh, Rodney Stark reckons that Christians were 0.08% of the empire, by the time we get to 251 AD, um, less than 100 years later, um, he reckons there are 1.9% of the empire. He reckons there are about 1.2 million uh, Christians. And uh, Cyprian, the bishop of, of Carthage, um, said this, he, he said, how suitable, how necessary it is that this plague and pestilence, which seems horrible and deadly, searches out the justice of each and every one and examines the mind of the human race, whether they care well for the sick, whether relatives dutifully love kinsmen as they should, whether physicians do not desert the afflicted. So plague is an opportunity to reveal the human heart. What's, what are humans going to be like? And this is, this is sort of the sifting um, that was happening through the plague. And, and Christians had an opportunity to model something very different um, from the rest of, uh, of, of society. The Christian response to plague and disease would lead to the founding of the first public hospitals and the nursing profession, as John Wyatt explains. And it's interesting that uh, Basil, another bishop of Caesarea, created the first modern hospital in AD 386, and it was a hospital created specifically for plague victims. So here in the UK, we've had the Nightingale Hospital set up in, uh, in massive conference centers as a way of caring for plague victims, but it's not the first time that that's happened. And really, it was Basil, a Christian bishop, who first had that idea. And did you know that the name hospital is taken from the Latin word hospes, which means a guest? So a hospital is a place where you practice Christian hospitality to strangers and guests. And so that tradition has been carried on uh, right to the present. And there's no doubt that it was motivated uh, by the example of Jesus himself, and in particularly the fact that Jesus was prepared to take the lowliest roles. He washed the feet of his disciples. He cared for uh, leprosy victims. He he took he he went out of his way to sacrifice himself for the most needy. And then after he'd washed the feet of his disciples, he said, "You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet." I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And so taking the example of Jesus himself, the early Christians practiced this sacrificial caring. And actually that was the dawn of the nursing profession. Although medicine traces its origins back to Hippocrates and before then to pagan healers, nursing uh, as a profession was created by Christians. It's a uniquely Christian understanding that taking this lowly position of service is still an act where you can have an enormous sense of respect and dignity because we are following Christ. 
The key factor, I think, in the growth of Christianity was community. Rodney Stark. In a world that had no social services, in a world which had many slaves and very poor people, here was an organization in which people took care of one another, which in a sense provided social services that weren't there for anyone else. I'm not sure that, you know, I'm not suggesting that uh, people join Christianity for ulterior motives or just because uh, they, they got a free meal. But there were enormous advantages, and that certainly didn't hurt. It's again, it's not that Christians have a monopoly on healthcare, for instance. It was the Greeks who wrote all the manuals of, of healthcare and Galen's four humors and all, all that kind of stuff, and and manuals of midwifery, and and so you know the, the Greeks gave us great you know theory about that kind of stuff, and and the Romans they they had sort of sick bays that were for your slaves and your soldiers, when your slaves and your soldiers were no longer economically or militarily profitable for you. You'd fix them up and make them profitable again. But the idea that you would nurse the weak and the poor who could not pay for it, and um, that, that was a radical and revolutionary kind of idea. And, and the idea of welfare states, I mean, the, the early dioceses were, were kind of miniature welfare states with the bishop presiding over it, and the, and the bishops were expected to be those who provided for the widow and the orphan and the outsider. Um, so that, that kind of thing, and, and you get to see how odd that was. Odd it was, but now we regard access to healthcare, clean water, education and many other aspects of life as fundamental rights for all people across the world. But it was the early Christians who paved the way for such an attitude and generations of subsequent activists, missionaries and reformers that saw these ideals and institutions spread throughout the world. To be sure, the delivery has often been patchy, and the power of the church has at various points been wielded as a tool of oppression as well as compassion. But as John Dixon memorably pointed out in a previous episode, whenever Christians have done so, they have found themselves out of tune with the melody played by Jesus and the self-giving love of a crucified God that inspired the first Christians to be a light in a dark world. Perhaps one of the thorniest issues for historians to grapple with are the triumphs and failures of Christendom when it comes to the institution of slavery. In another British city, this is Bristol. A statue of a 17th century slave owner was taken down and tossed into the water. CNN's Nina Dos Santos is standing by in London as we see that uh, video there. Apparently it had been discussed by city officials what to do with this statue for quite a long time. Nothing resolved. So as we can see, protesters took care of it. When the Black Lives Matter protests swept through America and the UK in 2020, it led to the toppling of statues, including that of 17th century slave trader Edward Colston in Bristol. His own legacy presents an example of the conflicted history of Christianity. The funds from his slave trading were used to build hospitals, schools and almshouses in Bristol, and churches too. 
Yet the abolitionists of the 18th century were also Christians. To understand this history, we need to go further back than the 17th and 18th century to the 1st century and remind ourselves of how slavery functioned in the ancient world. Nijay Gupta. You know, it's it's hard for us to understand a slave economy because uh, slaves were pervasive in, in the Roman world. You know, in other societies, you kind of hid your slaves. Rome said, let's make them visible in the sense that they're going to be they're going to be slaves that work for the government. They're going to be slaves that work in businesses. They're going to be slaves that work in schools and households everywhere. Many Roman scholars estimate that they they made up 30 to 40 percent of the population. So they were especially in urban settings, there would be a massive number of slaves. In the early Roman Empire, the buildings, infrastructure and commerce essential to its civilization would have been built upon the backs of slaves who did the jobs no one else wanted to do. The slave trade was a booming market and successful military campaigns were commonly the entry point for whole swathes of people to become enslaved to the victors. In the Greek and Roman world, slavery was regarded not only as essential to economic prosperity, but also as part of the natural order of things. Aristotle summarized the attitude of his peers when he wrote, For that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary, but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. What Rome did was really incentivize slavery and basically say, number one, We'll create really clear systems for how you can earn your freedom. Number two, we're going to incentivize being well-behaved, right? We can make it better as slavery. Now, let me just go on the record saying slavery is a social evil. I completely believe that. It was as evil then as it is at any point in history. But the Romans tried to make it really appealing so that people not only would want to be slaves if they needed to get out of debt, but they could actually earn their way through obedience and Romanization to getting their freedom, which sometimes did happen. Now, at the same time, they were not really even seen as human. Many scholars say they were seen similar to the way work animals are seen on a farm, right? Or today, the way we look at our cars, right? We could take good care of them or we could take bad care of them, but in the end, they're just property. They don't have feelings, right? They, they're, not, they're not people, our cars. And so just take, for example, how common it was to abuse slaves physically, punishment, torture, neglect them. If a slave ran away, right, you have professional slave catchers, things like that. Uh, we have neck collars made of metal that they, some of them would have to wear when they came back that said, I've run away before. If I run away again, return me to this address, something like that. You've probably heard about how often slaves were used for sexual gratification men and women slaves. If a slave had a child against their will from their master, that child would be a slave of the master. Their parents don't have care and authority over them. So the life of a slave from in terms of status was very degrading. As Nijay says, despite some attaining positions of seniority and even sometimes freedom, in general, a slave was regarded as less than a person. They were not allowed to own property, had little recourse to justice or basic rights, and were typically subject to corporal punishment and, in some cases, summary execution. When the senator Lucius Padanius Secundus was murdered by one of his slaves, 
the Senate approved the execution of all 400 of his household slaves as punishment. So why then doesn't the Bible, if it claims to be a book from God, specifically forbid slavery? It's a question that came up recently between Sam Harris and Ben Shapiro on The Daily Wire. It is just an inconvenient fact that slavery is endorsed in the Bible. It's, it's explicitly endorsed in the Old Testament, and it's, it's certainly not repudiated in the New, right? And you know, Jesus told you know, slaves to serve their masters and serve their Christian masters especially well. So there's no place in the Bible uh, where you can get a, a truly compelling case against slavery because the creator of the universe clearly expected slavery to be a human institution. Well, except for abolitionists finding enough inspiration in the Bible they, to use they it they as did their that main despite, text. But they, dis they did that despite what's in the Bible. Well, I think, I think that that is, I mean, I, I, I don't want to, this, this shouldn't sound insulting because it's not meant as an insult. I think that from a religious point of view, that's, an ins that's, that's a simplistic reading of the Bible's role in, in human affairs, meaning that when any written document is given to any group of people, it has to be given to people in a way that they can understand. It's not that slavery was endorsed by the Bible, it's that slavery is universal among human civilization until modern times. The reality of how change happens is, as Shapiro hints, complicated. And to correct Harris, Jesus never commands slaves to serve their Christian masters. Harris is probably thinking of St. Paul's household codes in some of his letters in the New Testament, which we'll come to. The Old Testament certainly assumes slavery as part of the status quo in the ancient Near East and, at various points, affirms its place through the laws in the Torah. But, as many scholars have pointed out, the regulations laid down for the treatment of slaves in the Hebrew scriptures were leagues ahead of those adhered to by surrounding nations. This was not the chattel slavery of the transatlantic slave trade, which we'll also come to, but something more like indentured servitude. Frequently, to sell oneself into this form of service was the only way of ensuring survival or economic stability. So was this the ideal for humans, envisaged by Genesis 1's affirmation that God made all humanity in his image? Certainly not. But as many theologians have pointed out, in bringing about his purposes, God may choose to accommodate the cultural norms of a society as it is, rather than move it immediately to where it should be. Much of the Old Testament is the story of God gradually drawing hard-hearted and sinful people out of the practices of the pagan cultures around them towards a radical new awareness of his moral law and his perfect love. But the work of changing human hearts and human culture is a marathon, not a sprint. It takes time. This plays out throughout the whole story of the Jewish people. Having been slaves under the Egyptians themselves, they were reminded time and again that they were to be a light to the nations, bearing the promise of a future freedom. But that light would take a long time to break through in its fullness. Fast forward to the New Testament, and we still never receive an explicit denunciation of the institution of slavery. But Paul's instructions to masters and slaves are notable for the difference they contain to the common household codes of their day. This is New Testament scholar Lynn Kohick speaking on the Public Christianity podcast. You know, there's people today who say about Christians, well, why didn't they just get rid of slavery? 
as though somehow the Christians, especially in the first three centuries, had the power to do that. We have to remember, this is a tiny band. Uh, they don't have any political power. Um, all they can affect is their own group. And from the very beginning, from Paul's letters, he really knocks the foundation out from the institution of slavery when he says that owners need to treat the slaves as they want to be treated themselves and theologically that God shows no favoritism. Now that's news to the Greco-Roman world. They did think that God played favorites. I mean, their gods played favorites. But the one true God does not show favoritism. The other way I think that the early Christians reduced the power of slavery was by elevating slaves themselves. So in the second and third century, we have the age of the martyrs. Not that there were a lot of Christians martyred at that time, but those that were, were remembered and they shaped what Christians thought about themselves. And they also shaped how the wider public thought about Christians. Well, there are a lot of slaves amongst the martyrs, including, for example, Felicitas, very famous female slave who was martyred. And her story was told every year at, on her anniversary, so to speak, of her martyrdom. Another slave, Blandina, she's also remembered in probably the most famous history book of all time, Eusebius's church history. Now, these are slave women, and yet they are set up as models for all Christians, men and women, free and slaves, to honor and to emulate. And so the Christians, even if they didn't have power to remove the institution of slavery, nevertheless gave slaves the ultimate honor. As Coic reminds us, major social revolutions don't happen overnight. But in the New Testament, we do see the trajectory of thought that would one day lead to the abolition of slavery, led by Christians in response to reading their Bibles. St. Paul did not seek to overturn the social order of his day, but he radically undermined it in various ways. We're fortunate to have at least one letter of his that deals with this at a very practical level, written by Paul to Philemon, the owner of a runaway slave, Onesimus, who had come under Paul's care. Under Roman law, a runaway slave was punishable by death. But Paul's letter encourages Philemon to take back Onesimus, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. In this lecture, for Fuller Seminary, New Testament historian N.T. Wright sketches out why this was so radical in its time. The gospel for runaway slaves is, first, the good news that God loves them so much that Jesus died for them, but it is, second, the news that the reconciliation they have found with the living God is also the reconciliation that must be put into effect with their brothers and sisters. That was hard for Philemon, it was hard for Onesimus, but it was central to the message and mission of Paul the Apostle. You see this quite clearly if you, if you contrast Paul's letter to Philemon with a letter by a near contemporary of his, Pliny the Younger. And he had occasion to write to a friend, a social inferior, about a young man in trouble. Not an exact parallel to Philemon and Onesimus, but not too far off either. But let's just say that in Pliny's letter, nothing changes socially. Oh, he wants his friend to do the decent thing, to be kind after a fashion. But society is not changed. Everyone keeps their place in the social order. 
Whereas with Paul, something quite radical has happened. He stretches out one hand and says, here is Onesimus. He is my son, my very heart, my second self. And he stretches out the other hand and says, and you Philemon, we are partners. We're in this gospel business together. You owe me your own very self anyway. I want to return on that investment. And as Paul in this letter reaches out to both of them, we see that though he doesn't explicitly mention the death of Jesus in this letter, he is enacting the death of Jesus and its reconciling power in his pastoral ministry. Paul was moving in the natural direction that Christ's own ministry had established, the Christ who in his incarnation took on the form of a slave, according to Philippians 2, the one who lived among the poor and downtrodden, ministering to both masters and servants, the one who ultimately died the kind of humiliating death reserved for rebellious slaves and criminals. The trajectory for emancipation was established by the Christian revolution, even though it took several centuries for it to be brought to completion. Historian Kyle Harper. For the first time in the fourth century, um, in fact, among a group of bishops in what's now Turkey, in Cappadocia, you find actual uh, full-fledged criticisms of slavery as an institution. And in particular, I look at the social thought of an important um, Nicene bishop in the middle to late fourth century named Gregory of Nyssa, uh, who is the first person to say that slavery is categorically wrong. And it's a remarkable document, a sermon he's preaching on the book of Ecclesiastes and uh, just absolutely launches on an unexpected and unprecedented tirade, says all humans have dignity. And in particular says, think about the slave sale. How could you exchange money for the image of God? What has equal value? What has equal worth to the image of God? Human beings have moral reason and you cannot put a price on moral reason. And it's an extraordinary argument. There's nothing like it in Stoicism. And for the first time you see this kind of logic that says human beings have dignity and this has political, this has practical, this has institutional, this has social implications. And uh, what a courageous kind of train of thought. It's almost like the, the Christian social gospel is a moral light switch. It's a, it's, a, it's a flip. It's not a kind of gradual incremental improvement. It's a kind of argument, a kind of logic that was uh, utterly unprecedented um, in the ancient world. Now, the great tragedy is that this has utterly no consequence um, in ancient Cappadocia, in ancient law. But nevertheless, for the first time, you see this kind of logic, and it's squarely grounded in the idea that all human beings are creatures in the image of God, and they therefore bear a kind of moral rationality that can be violated um, by particular social arrangements. As Harper says, the ideas incipient in Christianity took time to spread through the empire. Slavery was first dissipated with the fall of the Roman Empire in the 5th century, and then the impetus moved through Europe and Britain, until by medieval times, slavery, at least in the Christian West, was effectively a thing of the past. Nevertheless, the spectre of a new, racialized chattel slavery emerged in the New World. From the 16th to the 19th century, the transatlantic slave trade saw between 10 and 12 million enslaved Africans transported to the Americas, many perishing in the inhumane conditions of the ships, while those who survived faced brutality and servitude. It was one of the greatest evils our world has ever known. So people always say, well, 
you know, why, why did it take so long for Christians to decide um, to get rid of slavery, that slavery was wrong? This is Tom Holland speaking on the Trigonometry podcast. I mean, Christians always thought slavery was, was, was wrong. Um, but in the same way that they thought kind of disease or poverty was wrong, but they just kind of assumed that it was part of, of, of what it is to be mortal. It's part of the inheritance of the fall. But what happened in the 18th century was that, the, again, we talked about these very distinctive Protestant idea, understanding of the spirit, which is that you read the text of scripture, the spirit illumines you. And your understanding of what is written there will transcend the kind of the, the, the base meaning. So the Bible nowhere says get rid of slavery. It nowhere says slavery is, 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 is as an institution should be abolished. But Christians from that Protestant tradition read the scriptures and came to the conclusion that slavery was was evil. And they did that chiefly because they were living in societies that had pushed the institution of slavery to a kind of hideously mechanized degree. So you could put up with, you know, slavery where it was two or three people, you know, in a village or something. But where you've got institutionalized mass torture and, and transportation, the horror of it began to percolate through and to stimulate the consciences of people who were witnessing it. And furthermore, on top of that, it became racialized. Because slavery previously hadn't been racialized, um, you know there were there were lots of white slaves in the early days of the colonies in America. But increasingly, um, because slaves came to, to be exclusively from African, that also served to unsettle the consciences of, of of white Christians because they knew that you know they tried to kind of manufacture reasons why why Africans should be enslaved and and, and uh, Europeans should be the masters, but they couldn't really do it, and and so. The strain of that ultimately enabled first Quakers and then evangelicals to convince themselves that God was against slavery. And then having done that, to agitate and push for its abolition. And the, the abolitionist movement really is the model for, for, for every socially concerned progressive movement that has followed since. It kind of, you know, it, it, in, in, in 1814, um, mass agitation across Britain forced the Foreign Secretary, Lord Castlereagh, in the Congress of Vienna after the defeat of Napoleon in 1814, to go there. And even though he didn't want to do it, it was kind of like Theresa May having to go and argue for Brexit, even though she didn't want to do it. She had to, same way Castlereagh had to, because he had this mass agitation going on behind him in London and across the country, to go and ask all the other powers, we've got to get rid of slavery. You know, you've got to sign up to it. Of course, history is never simple, and there were those who called themselves Christians on both sides of the slavery debate. The complicity of slave traders, plantation owners, and those who benefited from this trade inside and outside the church, and used the Bible to justify slavery, is not something we can sanitise or wave away. The centuries-long subjugation of black Africans is a scar that will always mark the conscience of Christendom. Yet. To further complicate things, enslaved Africans were also finding Christian faith and embracing its promise of freedom. This is Chinny MacDonald, author of God Is Not a White Man, speaking to myself and Belle Tyndall on the Reenchanting podcast. One of the really moving stories I came across when I was researching my book was during the um, period of slavery in America, often Christian 
um, enslaved people would be kind of allowed to go uh, mm-hmm. and gather together with other enslaved people under hush arbors, hush arbors like nestled under trees, and that's mm-hmm. where they would read the Bible, a Bible that taught to them about their um, emancipation and freedom, uh, a God that really saw saw them, the place that they would worship together, away from the um, gaze of their white owners. Mm. And so I think there's absolutely something to be said for being able to gather with other uh, black Christians or Christians from your culture in which there is something special that happens mm. there. As black Christians found solidarity through Christian faith and community, so those fighting for freedom, both black and white, found a clarion call for their cause in the Bible. From the exodus escape from slavery in Egypt to the revolution started by that crucifixion that allowed Paul to write the countercultural words of Galatians 3, that now there is neither slave nor free, for you are all one in Christ. Uh, The fact of the matter is, from the outset, you know, when it comes to the abolitionist movement, um, yeah, obviously we think about people like William Wilberforce, a lot of Equiano, you know, the Sons of Liberty and so forth, on up through, you know, uh, Frederick Douglass, uh, Henry Highland Garnett, J.W. Le Guin, you know, so many of our freedom fighters understood the potency of the Christian message and how it actually undergirded uh, their, their, uh, their fight for freedom. This is Adam Coleman, founder of the True ID podcast and ministry, explaining why the slave trade was ultimately undermined by those who took the Bible seriously. You know, it's not the case that Christianity is just, you know, was this a uh, tool of oppression full stop? Absolutely not. It was actually Christianity that gave uh, the abolitionists and then later on civil rights leaders the, the moral capital, if you will, to leverage against those systems of oppression. And so the reality is, is that for much of the slave trade, there were swaths of slave masters who actually prevented the preaching of the gospels because based upon English common law, it was illegal to own an enslaved person uh, who professed to be a Christian. And so what you begin to see enslaved persons trying to leverage the courts to petition for their, their freedom on the basis of having been baptized. And so the response from the slave masters was, well, okay, well, if we don't let you get preached to, if you don't hear the gospel, then you can't get baptized. If you can't get baptized, then you can't be set free. And so you actually had many slave masters uh, preventing preaching the gospel to enslaved persons. Right here in the Smithsonian here in America, there's a, you have the, the slave Bible, uh, which is this uh, version of the Bible where they've extracted things like 90% of the Old Testament and 50% of the New Testament. Anything associated with the Exodus, you know, anything associated with equality between the enslaved person and the slave master, anything like that was taken out. And then this redacted version of the Bible was given to enslaved persons to read to read and learn from. Well, my thing is, if Christianity is such a, a handmaiden for slavery, then why would they have to take out 90% of the Old Testament and 50% of the New Testament in order to substantiate their case? Obviously, they understood that there were narratives in the Bible, that there is clear teaching in the Bible that didn't align with chattel slavery. And so that's why they took it out before giving it to enslaved persons. There's an interesting um, biography written by a guy uh, named Josiah, um, Josiah Henson, who was an enslaved person. He escaped and then uh, became an abolitionist himself. And he talks about how later on in his life, um, he went back to the plantation uh, where he was raised. And he brought his wife there. She, he wanted her to see where he had come from, essentially. By this time, civil war was over and, and uh, slavery had ended. Uh, and when he gets back to the plantation, he, you know, everything is kind of overrun with with brush. It is all looking shabby and everything. By this point, his the his slave master had had passed away, but the his the wife is still alive. So he goes in to see her, and she's all sickly. She can't recognize him. 
Um, and the only way she's actually able to recognize him is he has scars on his arms from years earlier where he had actually saved the, the slave master's life. And so in feeling those scars, she recognized who he was. And so she says to Jos Josiah Henson, oh, Sai, Sai, that was short for Josiah. Oh, Sai, Sai, I'm sorry to tell you this, but your master is dead and gone. To which she replies, no, madam, my master is yet alive. He's referring to Jesus Christ. And I think to me, it was just so powerful because that's what it meant for an enslaved person to give their lives over to Jesus. Slavery just wasn't just about physical shackles and chains. It was this ideology that said that you were less than, you were less than human. And it was actually through Christianity that so many people found this equalizer, this equalizer of dignity, humanity, moral value, and so forth, which they were able to anchor their souls in, you know? And so I think that those stories need to be told. And actually, I think that for many, many people who believe that they are uh, upholding the dignity of Africans by downgrading Christianity, they're actually doing the opposite because they're trampling upon the very worldview that so many of our ancestors relied upon to propel them out of slavery and towards freedom. Of course, there is still much to be done. Even if inspired by a divine hand, the church continues to be composed of fallen humans. The fact we still see many churches divided on racial lines is a sign of that, says Chinny MacDonald. If there was no more racism, I don't know whether that would necessarily mean that everyone would kind of be mixed up together and diverse. But I actually think that that's how I wish things were. I think that there shouldn't be monocultural churches does not reflect this kind of radically diverse, messy church that is written about from kind of first century Palestine, where they were all, all coming from all sorts of different places and backgrounds. They had to kind of work it out together. They were probably sort of um, tension, friction, disagreement, ways of doing things. But actually, the beauty of the Christian faith is that God tears down those dividing walls of hostility between people as it's written in Ephesians 2. And that to me is a beautiful picture of how the church should be. The church of the first century was arguably the first great experiment in multiculturalism. As people of all genders, classes, races and cultures called themselves a family. It was never a perfect picture of the promised new creation, fraught as it was with the arguments and social divisions of its time. But, says N.T. Wright, it is still at root the biblical vision of a multicultural church that has frequently failed to live up to its promise that still inspires today's secular world. Paul in Colossians 3.11 insists that in the Jesus-following family there is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised or not, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. That's what it means, he says, to put on the new humanity which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of the Creator. This dream was regularly ignored in Western churches in the modern period, but it was then picked up on in the secular Enlightenment. Today's secular vision of a multicultural global society, a Christian ideal detached from its Christian roots. If the church doesn't speak up, others may do it instead. Sometimes, as Jesus warned, the children of this age are wiser than the children of light. So, as Pope Benedict said when speaking prophetically to the United Nations in April 2008, the human rights discourse has become a way of trying to get the fruits of the Judeo-Christian tradition while detaching itself from the roots. And if you do that, your discourse will collapse into a shrill, 
shouting match of competing special interests. In this episode, we've explored how the Christian story has shaped our modern notions of care for the weakest and most vulnerable, children, especially girls and those born with disabilities, how it has created charities, hospitals and the nursing profession, and how, despite its chequered history, it inspired the overturning of slavery, an institution that had been the de facto norm across the world for millennia. As we heard in previous episodes, we could add to this list its role in grounding human rights, the concept of sexual consent and the flourishing of education, art and literature in culture. But as N.T. Wright, quoting the late Pope Benedict, asks, can we retain these fruits without the roots? Glenn Scrivener has been asking similar questions in his book, The Air We Breathe, how we all came to believe in freedom, kindness, progress and equality. Essentially, what I'm doing here is just saying there's a Jesus-shaped hole in culture, in society. You know, we do believe in the Good Samaritan still. We still believe in freedom and progress and consent and enlightenment and, and these things. And so what I, what I really just want to do is, is to explore people's moral intuitions. I have a conviction that what is at the other end of that is either nothing or it's Jesus, right? Like, it's, it's either a vibe, right? <laughs> Or there's something substantial, and that that something substantial is Jesus. And and so, like a, a really obvious or practical thing is, you know, my my neighbor just he was on Facebook, and he just he just showed me this this video of of a kid who was pro- profoundly disabled, who was the the basketball team kind of looked after the uniforms all season in this high school basketball team, and he was brought on on the final game. And he was set up for the final shots, you know, and he missed the first shot, but that's okay. The opposition is even giving him the ball and he shoots again and he misses, he shoots again. When he, when he, when he scores, oh my goodness, the roof just erupts. And we both had, you know, this, this real spine tingling moments of watching pure compassion, right? The, this pure moment of lifting up the lowly. And you know he's he, he's genuinely lifted up on their shoulders, and, and the, it's the 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 victory of the the one who is down and out. And we just got into a great conversation about why do we love that? Why do we love that story? And then I was just able to say, look, look for me, I, I think that's an echo of of the Jesus story. You know, he he is the one who was absolutely down and out and rose again for all the down and outs. And and at the heart of Christian faith is that God is one who sacrifices. God is one who stoops and serves and suffers and bleeds and dies. You know, that's that's the kind of God I can believe in. What do you reckon? And he was like, yeah, I've never thought about it like, like that. And and man, we're, we're thinking about baptizing him. And the way in was just excavating that crater <laughs> called compassion and saying, this looks remarkably like Jesus, don't you think? And him saying, yeah. And then him meeting the one who is compassion on legs. We began today's episode hearing how Tom Holland was brought face to face with the reality of crucifixion in Sinja, northern Iraq, an experience that has stayed with him and fueled his own desire to show a largely secular world how much its own values stand in the shadow of a first century crucifixion that turned the world's values of dominance and power on its head. Holland has also told how, although he finds that story of the God-man crucified and raised to life hard to believe, he still wants to believe in the world it represents. Along with my co-host, Belle Tyndall, of the Reenchanting podcast, I recently sat down with Holland to talk not only about where the thesis of his book Dominion has led him intellectually, 
but where the journey has led him so far at a spiritual level. As this Christian story intellectually has obviously you, you realised the power and impact of it and so on. I, I I know that you know you you pop into the odd church, you darken the doorway of the odd uh, building. Has this kind of gone alongside a sort of personal kind of spiritual journey? Well, so I still I still believe that in in the liberal values that I had. Yes. Well, uh, instinctively I believe in them. Objectively, I don't. If if I'm being <laughs> if I'm being um, purely absolutely pitiless with yes. myself, if I the pure I, rationalist I kind of yes. I I I. I I stand on a kind of Nietzschean abyss where basically I can't believe anything, but I want to believe. Mm. Um, I feel the under, you know, the, the the underpinnings have been taken away. So in that sense, it's quite a kind of Victorian crisis of faith. You know, yes. Matthew Arnold, ever. I mean, they were all George Eliot. They were kind of feeling this as well in in a way. But I do still believe in them. I do still think I, that every human being has a dignity. I do think that that strength isn't the measure of value. Mm. And these, I, I, I recognize these as being not scientific, not being objective, but as being bred of a distinctive cultural and, and theological tradition that is all around me, mm. that is part of my inheritance. It's very, very easy for me to read the Bible, go to a church, listen to what Christians are saying read the great masterpieces of, of, of Christian literature and and feel moved by it and feel that I, I am a part of what they're talking about. Mm. And sometimes I, I can feel that this is more for me than just a kind of an exercise in cultural tourism. Mm. Sometimes I can feel, you know, I can believe that um, the spirit is real uh, I, I I can believe that the story of the passion and the resurrection is so strange that it's not just a kind of um, cultural accident, that perhaps it, it is expressive of something that is true. Mm. And there are other times where I just think, no, it's all complete nonsense. Um, we are just animals, <laughs> you know, we're just animals. We'll probably all be wiped out by an asteroid at some point or... <laughs> You know, we'll, like go the way of the dinosaurs. Yeah, we'll go the way of the dinosaurs. Yeah. No, it'll all be. And I suppose it's a bit like when you're first like trying to ride a bike, that that you can find yourself, wow, I'm riding a bike, mm. and then you think, ah, oh, and then you fall off. <laughs> and it it varies on my mood. It varies on the time of the year. It it varies on how hard I think about what it is that I'm doing. Yes. Um, but I suspect that I, I'm not in, unusual in that, actually. I I, um, I would agree. I, I think you, your experience is probably shared by so many, but there's a sense in which inevitably faith has always been something where you, you to some extent, do have to do that Kierkegaardian sort of leap of faith of saying, okay, I can only... My reason and logic can only take me so far, and and at this point, I am sort of going on a sense of my gut instinct that the way I would want why the way I want life to be. Almost. But I tell you, I mean, I tell you when I when I feel it, when I feel it least, is when I hear Christians talking about Christianity as though it's just something that can be entirely blended in seamlessly with okay. the, the broader pattern of, mm. of of the secular world 
then I just despise it and think there's no point in it. it and you know, grow up like everything else. Yeah. yeah, you know, when I when I visit, uh, I don't know. So I've just I've just been to Kent, mm. um, exploring pre-Norman conquest Kent, and among I went to um, St Martin's, you know, on the outskirts of Canterbury, which is the church that Bertha, who was the mm. um, Frankish queen of Athelbert of Kent, who, who receives Augustine first of the Archbishops of Canterbury. Um, and, and she was, she'd been given this, this, this place that seems to have been a Roman mausoleum. So you stand in that place and you are not only going back to the beginnings of, of continuous Christianity in the English speaking world in that space, but you're also going back beyond that to the last days of the Roman empire and a sense of the strangeness mm. there. Then I completely felt, I, I completely felt it. I felt the kind of spirit rush. The flame, um, and maybe it's just that my sensibility is very—I f- I feel moved by by antiquity, perhaps. Yeah. But you know, but Christianity is an ancient religion, yeah. and and that antiquity, you know, it's it's written through time. That's the whole point of it. Yeah. Augustine talks of the church as being on you know on a, yeah. a, a pilgrim church going through time. So the fact that Christianity is situated in time in history is important, mm. and I, I personally I find that very moving, and that I find that. I crave the enchantment. Mm. And I think yes. a Christianity that has bled itself of enchantment mm. is a pallid and an anemic thing. Recently, I had the opportunity to attend a service of Evensong with Tom Holland at a church he has been frequenting in recent years. St Bartholomew the Great is London's oldest church, established some 900 years ago by Rahia, a courtier and jester for King Henry I, who, after falling ill on a pilgrimage to Rome, vowed to build a hospital for the poor if he recovered. It seems his prayers were answered and, on his return, he reported a vision of St Bartholomew, instructing him to establish not only a hospital, but also a church at Smithfield in London, where the hospital and church still stand to this day. The worship at St Bartholomew the Great, in the high Anglo-Catholic tradition, is perfectly suited to its ancient colonnades, arches and vaulted ceiling that seems to disappear into the ether of hazy incense above you. I took a moment to survey the Sunday evening congregation, around a hundred strong, made up of millennials, young professionals, at least one well-known politician, and even the occasional melancholy rock star among its ranks. Evidently, it's not only Tom Holland who craves the mystery and enchantment this place offers in the centre of London. In a one-to-one conversation with Tom, I asked him about why he attends. It's interesting in a sense that the church you have ended up going along to is one of the oldest churches in the course. Of course, because I love all that. (laughs) And I was going to ask, what, what has that process been like of trying church on again refamiliarizing yourself have you entered it i suppose with a very different viewpoint than when you sort of shrugged it off to some extent from child well, I, was, I, I was going as coptic churches visiting you know, as old a church as i could get to when i was writing um early medieval stuff went to, to saint bartholomew's uh for, for the medieval went to lutheran went to reformed churches you know so, so going into the modern period 
obviously became easier. I, I like St. Bartholomew's because it's so old be and because it's very Catholic, but it's reformed. And the Lady Chapel, where the Virgin made her only appearance in the whole of London, <laughs> is also where um, Benjamin Franklin worked as a printer because it, it, it got sold off in the Reformation right. and got converted into a British shop. And then the church brought it back and turned it back into the Lady Chapel. You know, that's, that's, that, that's where I am. I, I want mystery. I want weirdness. I want strangeness. That's exactly what I want. I want everything that, by and large, in its public manifestations, the, the, the churches seem to, 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 to be a bit embarrassed about. For me, the most moving part of the Evensong we sat through at Great St. Bartholomew's was a beautiful rendition of the Magnificat. Mary, pregnant with Jesus, visits her cousin Elizabeth in Luke chapter 2, whose own child John leaps within her womb at her greeting. With its famous opening line, My soul doth magnify the Lord, Mary offers a song of praise that is a foretaste of the kingdom that her child will inaugurate. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seat and hath exalted the humble and meek. He hath filled the hungry with good things and the rich he hath sent empty away. Tom says he wants the strangeness, the weirdness, the mystery of Christianity. But arguably, this is the strangest part of all the claim that God turned the world upside down by coming in person, through a teenage girl, into straw poverty and a dark and broken world, preaching that the first shall be last and the last shall be first, and suffering the crucified death of a rebel slave in an act of sacrificial love. Reflecting on his journey through Sinjar, Tom turned again to the crucifixion. And then in Sinjar, to be in a place that where crucifixion was taken for granted and was done for the purpose that the Romans had done it was completely shocking because it opened up to me the enormous abyss. The idea of what, what is it like to live in a world where people accept that you know, regard crucifixion as, as a positive, it kind of opened up this immensity of dread of what such a world would be like. Because ultimately, you kind of psychologically depend on the assumption that talking people on a cross is wrong. But if people don't have that, then, then it kind of opens up a sense of existential dread, I think. Thomas said it's often standing in beautiful ancient churches with roots that stretch into the distant past that he feels most able to believe in the strangeness of the Christian faith. But this time, it was a church in Sinjar, recently vandalised by ISIS, where the veil between heaven and earth seemed for a moment to become paper thin. My, my mind was saturated with, with all biblical stuff. And we went to a church that had been systematically desecrated and it, it was kind of scattered all over the bombs, you know, uh, all over the place. They'd literally, they brought in power drills and demolished the altar and everything. They'd taken all the pictures off and smashed them on the ground. There, what there was a, a a picture that I picked up that showed the Annunciation with kind of you know, Gabriel's wings. Was kind of open to the idea of there being angels at that point. I, I was so kind of spacey. 
that it didn't remotely seem to me impossible that there were angels. It was kind of a, a kind of sweet sense of intoxication that perhaps everything was weird and strange. And the moment you accept that there are angels, then suddenly the world just seems richer and more interesting. And so I came back from that and 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 <laughs> recovered and thought, well, you know, I, I could entirely see why there were psychological reasons why I would think that. You know, it doesn't need, I don't need to explain it as, as a kind of, you know, angels actually exist. But the memory of, of thinking that they might exist was, 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 was a really powerful one. It was kind of like taking a drug. It was like the memory of taking a drug. Everything seems more intense, more vivid, more beautiful, and you remember it wistfully. You remember that experience. And I think that that was very transformative because suddenly I really wanted to believe it. I really wanted to get that feeling back. Tom tells me he's still on a journey and remains open to where it may take him as he opens himself up to the strangeness of Christianity. Perhaps we shall hear more of the strangeness of his journey when he joins me in London on the 5th of March for a live event. If you can't be there, don't worry. The conversation will be made available through this podcast. The citizens of the modern West have almost completely forgotten their founding story. Along with others, Holland has been helping them to remember the weirdness of the story that shaped their world. And by comparison, how weird the world before the Christian revolution now appears to them. In doing so, I believe a world which, like Holland, increasingly finds itself dissatisfied with secular materialism and in which the foundations seem to be coming apart, has perhaps begun to ask itself whether the story of Christianity could be true after all. And perhaps if the church is willing to risk being weird once more and to unapologetically tell its story of the God who became human, lived an exemplary life, suffered crucifixion and was raised to life again, a new generation may yet find meaning in the midst of the rubble. You've been listening to The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, telling the story of how new atheism grew old and secular thinkers are considering Christianity again. This podcast series is also a book. You can read the first chapter for free when you join my newsletter at justinbriley.com, where you can also order the book or get a signed copy. Support via Patreon or tax-deductible giving from the USA gets you early access to new episodes of the podcast, including advanced access to the recording of that forthcoming evening with Tom Holland in London. Find out more and about other ways to support this show at justinbriley.com. Coming up next time. It was one of the things that I thought was fundamentally wrong with the new atheist case is that they kept behaving as if as if belief in something was actually optional. And uh, I, look back, I look back and it always moves me just to talk about it because I feel like God put himself out of the picture so I could hear it, you know. It's like, it's like another lifetime, pal, but yeah, I it can't yeah. get away from it. More surprising conversions. Why celebrated author Francis Spufford and Hollywood screenwriter Andrew Claven came to faith. Today's episode was a production of Think Faith in partnership with Genexis, editing assistance by Isaac Simmons. 
You can find links to the book and all our featured guests with the show notes. Finally, please do subscribe to this podcast, rate and review us. Do share it on social media too. It really helps others to discover this documentary series. And of course, you can get the next episode you just heard a clip from two weeks early when you support now at justinbriley.com. Again, the link is with today's show. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Just before I let you go, I had this lovely review from Chrissy saying, so good. I've literally consumed this podcast in three days. I've sent it to all my friends from various backgrounds. I pray you guys continue the amazing work and keep those episodes coming. Leaving a review like Chrissy really helps others to discover the show. But if you'd really like to help me keep those episodes coming, why not consider supporting the show or buying the book that this podcast is based on? The links are with today's show or visit justinbriley.com. See you at the next episode.